Hi, I'm Pamelia Chia, founder of Singapore Noodles, writer of Wet Market to Table, and your host for the Singapore Noodles podcast, where I will be bringing you honest and insightful dialogue with people who care deeply about Singaporean food. If you'd like to see more content, go to sgpnoodles.com for recipes, video tutorials, and more. And be sure to check out our planner for the new year. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Shiny Pua is a 22-year-old who grew up learning how to make teochew kui with her grandmother. A graduate of La Salle, she now juggles work as a designer with her business Ama's Legacy. Besides conducting workshops, she sells her homemade kui and kits that provide people with ingredients and techniques that they need to make kui at home. Hi Shiny, it's really lovely to speak with you today. Hi. So maybe you can take me back to how it all first started. Like the central figure in your business is your ama, right? So can you yes. tell me a little bit about her and um and what was her life story and how she influenced you to start this business? Um, so because I stayed with my grandma, she stays in my household for like all my life. Ever since I lost her, that was like the first few times that I didn't have her in my life. I've always heard her speak in Teochew about how, you know, she when she was younger, she always has like the bamboo thing and carry around the egg. She was really very smart because she goes like, okay, um, I used the broken eggs to make kaya. She has like a really like business mindset already because she wanted to just earn more money because she sells egg in the mornings. So she actually made breakfast like quiz so that people actually buy and they, it earns a lot more. So she decided to do that more often than selling just eggs. She, she will actually make it at home without me knowing because you know, like she always feels that the, the, the thing she make at home tastes like way better than the things that is like me outside. She'd be like, oh, if I if I buy we buy like kui from um, a different store, then she'd be like, how much is this? Oh, the taste not very nice, eh? <laughs> and she say like she was scold it's scold into chew. Then I'm like, okay, yes, I understand. I, I say okay if it's like that, then you make all then she'll make it. And then she makes it and it's it tastes really, really nice. Very different actually. Do you guys always have this close relationship? I, I wouldn't know whether to call it close or not because like I, I don't share with her personal stories every day because again there's like a form of language barrier i'm not really like proficient in teochew so i think our main form of like bonding was actually making kuei together so in my household and even her children i think i was the only one that was very interested in the making of it yeah i i, I kind of agree with you that you know food is a love language in asia not just in singapore right yeah. and i remember how when i was growing up i went to my cantonese papa's house a lot um and there was this generational and language barrier that you talked about as well because all we ever talked about was kind of like oh have you eaten and uh, uh, yes. oh how is your brother how's your sister that kind of thing so I remember one of my fondest memories was us making um, pig stomach soup together. That was the only Ooh. thing. That she... Oh my god, that's awesome! Oh, you have that in your culture as well in Teochew. Yeah, yeah. Oh, actually, because my house we are Hokkien and Teochew. My mom's side is Hokkien, so we always cook a bit of like mix and match of everything. So, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah so I mean, oh. that was like one of the fondest memories I had with her, and I wish that I started earlier, just like you, you know. I, I heard that your business started because you were studying at La Salle, right? And you were doing a project on Chinese heritage food. So can you tell me a little bit more about this project? Okay, so um, initially when uh, I started my year three, my grandma just passed away. So I was like, okay, I want to do something related to food. 
because I'm a foodie. So I wanted to do something related to like cultural food heritage. I want to do something about like loss of hawker culture, impact of like social media, because I realized that in our social media feeds nowadays, it's always like Western food, you know, like aesthetics. It's always aesthetics, especially for Gen Zs where they are living their life online. Then I think that I realized that I wanted to dabble more into my ama stuff because I realized that her story was something that I really wanted to put out, especially the fact that I didn't really know how else to showcase that design because it, again, again, it's a design school. <laughs> I didn't know how else to put the design out there. So I realized that um, using this thing called ama's legacy, I can make people appreciate Chinese food through the making of it. So I created like a like a, like a kit, because the kit is a lot of like packaging, you know, and design. So I get to have to do some design stuff inside. And there's like a PDF, you know, people, a manual and everything. Right. I saw that kit on your, your website this morning and I was so blown away. You know, the fact that you even have a, like a PDF recipe, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. When I saw that, I thought it was very similar to, you know, subscription boxes where they send yeah, you yeah, yeah. food and they yes. send you recipes as well, right? It was kind of like my inspiration, but it was really like different because I needed people to like, um, I didn't want a, a manual because when you're, you'll be cooking in like, you know, the, the hot like space and every, if you have a piece of paper, you know, it's going to be like flapping around. So, so everybody will have a phone next to them all the time when they're cooking, right? So they can you know, scroll through and read and you know, do cook as they read, you know? Yeah, I think that's one thing that I really liked about, about how you did it because it really considered the younger Singaporean. You, you just mentioned this term called Gen Z. To be honest, this is the first time I'm hearing the word Zoomer. I also didn't know how that word came about. I was just like, wait, am I a boomer? A Z boomer? What? <laughs> so there is boomers, which is like probably our parents' generation. And then there is my generation, which is like the millennials, right? And then there is your generation, which is the Gen Z or Zoomers as they call it. So I actually have a brother who is nine years younger. So he's about your age. Oh. Yeah, so he was born in 2000, so he's tw 20 oh, years old now. 20. You're 22, right? Yes, I'm 22. Yeah, so I mean, already I feel that there is a generational gap between us. I mean, like, we are close, but um, I feel that his generation or your generation grew up in very different times in that um, your generation grew up with technology mm, and social yeah. media. So yeah. I was just wondering how that influenced the way that your friends view heritage food? Actually, I, I would like to identify myself as a millennial <laughs> instead of a Gen Z because I think um, I met, I, I realized that even though, yes, I, we, we, my generation grew up with uh, all the technology and stuff, I think that because of um, my family background, which is like I'm always surrounded with older people and older gen, my bro is like, Eight year, six, six years older than me, so I'm. I would say I'm more like the loud, loud, loud that kind. And I, like my friends are all older than me, so I, I, I would say that my thinking is more millennial than Gen Z. So I actually had to, um, tweak the way I think because I realized that the Gen Zs they are into a lot more of like oh poppy colors, if not like that. But, you know, so <laughs> just the word aesthetic, you know, like everything must be look, must look good online. I curated my um this entire project 
and even like my current business now to become more like okay it has to people have to eat with their eyes first correct so it has to look very very nice but also current I, i'm looking more into like marketing and the way how nowadays people do their stuff is that you can either swing like oh everything aesthetic aesthetic or you can have something with a story and i wanted something with a story because that's where you know i have a lot of things to say about this in the end my fyp didn't attract gen z's um a lot of the millennials liked my project because technically millennials we are is the age range is from like 25 i think to 30ish right so the people that their parents are mostly like boomers and they probably have like grandparents and they they their their common food that they eat is also like kueh and stuff so you guys share that you know memory of eating kueh but a lot of the gen z's their parents are like millennials <laughs> where the millennials may not eat kueh for breakfast lunch or dinner and therefore they don't really have such a much of a strong connection with the food itself and therefore mm. i cannot even like give that memory making or, or nostalgia like idea to it yeah the family structure also changed a lot in singapore correct mm. the last time there was like three generations you have the ama and then you have the papa and the child right and then now it's papa and child yeah true you, know, you occasionally go to your grandparents like twice in a month but you don't you you're not eating like their food you're not curating your palate to their food and therefore your memory of um traditional food is not as strong for the gen z's uh, yeah mm so. i think that's something that i think about a lot because for example for my generation we grew up eating angkukwe or like you know even the paitangkao ah yes 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 oh my god love so much yeah so i mean those things are very nostalgic for us but i think for the younger generations they may not even have that flavor memory right like what you talked about um yeah. i remember because i previously published a book a cookbook in singapore called wet market the table so oh yes i read that <laughs> oh did you um yeah i did i, I looked through it yeah oh cool so there was this reporter who was giving me an interview and she was i think around your age range and so like she was asking me oh what is a good way to use pangkwang or hikama and i said oh you know you can use it in kuei pai tea and she just looked at me with this really blank stare and she was like what is kuei pai tea and i'm oh like my god <laughs> no oh my god and then i thought it was like a one off situation but i went to my grandmother's house for dinner one day and i was just talking with my cousins and passingly i mentioned angku kuei and they were like what is angku kuei which kuei is it and i was like oh my goodness i didn't know that it was such a prevalent issue it is a big issue yes do you feel like a lot of your friends know exactly what angku kuei is like because most, most of my friends are um i would say the the friend circle i have they are all very foodie ish so they they know what angku kuei or what kind of kuei they are um it may not be their daily thing but it may be like okay occasional festivals but actually for my research paper i interviewed quite a few gen z's which are like you know 15 16 you know the the, the gen z like, <laughs> yes yeah then um i actually realized that they actually did say oh uh, most of them only know angkukwe oh majority only know angkukwe because it's colorful and sweet the, the thing is about it is that peranakan kueh are very very um still liked in our our singaporean society actually like bengawan solo and everything they actually make themselves very accessible everywhere so that's why my my research was very targeted to chinese traditional chinese kueh instead like food 
because Peranakan, uh, I realized that Peranakan is actually still very much favored. And also there's a lot of like, you know, Peranakan attire for like, you know, um, what was that? In the racial harmony day, there's, yeah. there's Peranakan attire and everything. They, they always bring up our oh, okay, Malay heritage food. So it's always that. But the Chinese wise is like Sung Kui. It's very like if you eat it in like a class full of like young people, be like, oh my god, you're such a boomer. <laughs> because this, that's like your that's your it's associated with the older gen, you know. What do you think is the main difference between Teochew Kui and um Nonya Kui? I think Nonya they try to highlight, especially for a lot of Peranakan food, they always try to highlight this lemak taste. Yes. There's a lot of spices, there's a lot of like, you know, you want to have that coconut like yes. punch to it. So yeah, it's always have that oiliness to it. I think for like Teochew, we always like, I, I know that there's always a constant use of shallot oil. Mm. Like shallot oil is a very Teochew thing. Then um, also, I think um, even adding like heavy and all those like fragrance that, that uh, what? I wouldn't call it umami, but like it's, it's a lot of... Yeah, yeah, hum pang la, yeah. I don't know how to like it. It's very pang, you know. And um, yeah, I think in terms of just Ang itself, I know that traditionally, not per se Teochew, I know my grandma always use it, uses sweet potato in the skin. Mm. In like a lot of ways. Because it's like a lot more tender. She used it for ondeh ondeh. She used it for like Ang And then I, when I, when I re- remembered it, I was just like, oh yeah, I should, I should use like sweet potato for my kueh. And personally, because when I go out to eat, like, um, like the famous kueh uh, out there, the angku kueh, I bite into the skin, it just really chewy. <laughs> like, really, there's a lot of bite to it. It's too much bite. Yeah. Yeah. So what do they use if they don't use sweet potatoes? Just glutinous rice flour. Glutinous rice flour, water, and the colouring. Oh, yeah, wow. Most of the time. Yeah, that's also another situation which I, would, I, I, I normally find prevalent problem in Singapore, kueh are normally associated as cheap. Mm. So a lot of the, even the long, um, long-running kueh makers in Singapore have, like, you, they kind of have to make it commercial and it's going to be really, really cheap. So to cost it at one to one twenty, right, you're going to be just using glutinous rice flour for the skin. Yes, I think that is such an important point that you brought up. Um, I've been cooking a lot more local food than, you know, I've ever done before. And that is one thing that really struck me, the, how cheap Singaporean food is for the amount of labor and the amount of time involved in making the thing. So I think it really gives you a whole new appreciation for the craft. Yeah, I mean, I guess like when I, when I first launched my Anku Kueh, it was a really, really, I, I was de- debating of what kind of price I wanted to put it out there because it was, I had to justify to people that, hey, you know, it's, it's Japanese potatoes, I'm putting quality ingredients in, I'm making everything from scratch, you know, um, it's not frozen. And the older generation were looking at my kueh and be like, hey, 150 eh, that's like too expensive for a kueh. Because in their eyes, it's a $1 kueh. Yeah. Yeah. But to market it to Gen Zs or even millennials, right, I had to put the price up higher. Hmm. Because if not, to get that, that people buying, right, but it's, the amount of work, the amount yeah. of work to do it, and then it's like, to cost it at $1, that's impossible. When you talked about the 
the sweet potato, right? You mentioned that it's Japanese sweet potato. I was just wondering if it was an intentional thing because immediately when you put the word Japanese right in front of sweet potatoes, it yeah. seems a lot more atas, a lot more premium. Yeah. Was it intentional for you? I mean, that we I we use Japanese sweet potatoes, mm. but I had to be transparent on the fact that it's Japanese sweet potatoes. If not, again, people will not justify the price. You know, it, it's yeah. not justified. Right, so to put the word Japanese there is actually, yeah, I, ha- I put it there. First is transparency, but second is also, if you make it clear what the things are, you, you know, you kind of make people understand. Mm. And even things like, I, I make sure I put um, words like, oh, toasted sesame. So actually the words kind of make you like, you can smell the toasted sesame already <laughs> in your head. You can smell the roasted peanuts in your head already. You're like, oh! Because you know, I realized that Words does make a big impact, you know, copywriting is very important in like, you know, marketing nowadays, so. Yeah, you're such a great marketer. Do you learn all this in school? No, I mean, in school, we we are on our own devices, actually. I realized that food, when I was doing my research, I realized that food writing is very important. Like, you know, you got, you first, you had the visuals, you have the art of like, you know, food styling. There's so much things that goes about it. Photography, styling, and, you know, just the aesthetics of it. Then the next would be, if you have a nice picture but you have terrible copy, then it doesn't really sell. So, so I realized that all oh, I, I started looking at how you know bloggers nowadays, when food blogs, when they write about stuff, you know, they want to like keep it punchy and everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like that is the way to a young Singaporean's heart? Like it, you ha- you not only have to have good food, you also have to have like wonderful copy. You have to have great photos, great marketing. Yeah, like, honestly, a lot of food nowadays uh, is just good photo, good copy. Mm. Not gonna lie, don't put it out there. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's actually a lot of the times nowadays, we are very sold on what visual, what we visually eat. Yeah. And uh, sometimes you may, you know, go over to the shop, you buy it and be like, eh, okay lah, it's okay lah, you know. Hmm. Worth the hype, I guess. Yeah, you know, that's that's normally like the reaction, unless it's really, really tasty. But mostly it's just like, oh, choco ice cream, and then you eat it, I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> choco. <laughs> and a lot of things are, you know, we, our, I think our eyes are very desensitized by all these. You know, aesthetic. Yeah, so you talked a lot about how flavors are very important, right? I mean, you have to have a very, very good and delicious product to begin with. So I was just wondering if your generation can accept the flavors of your kuei because you did mention that you try to retain very traditional flavors by using things like charlotte oil. So I understand that you brush the skin of your angkukui with charlotte oil. So is this something, is this old school flavor something that young Singaporeans can accept? It's something new to them. I mean, some of them who never tasted charlotte oil before. I have a friend who n- doesn't really taste charlotte oil before. And she said, oh, there's this like weird savory taste to this sweet thing. Now I'm like, oh yeah, that's a charlotte oil. And they're like, oh, okay, it's interesting. Like when I had my Father's Day collection, I had yam kukui and I had um, the aang kukui, which is, um, traditional Teochew red bean and basically we cook it with shallow oil like it's dosed in that shallow oil both the yam and the, the red bean so it's a very like if an older generation person would eat it be like oh my god it's, it's you know the, the chuan taste mm. but if like a young generation would be like but that's not taro you know yeah it's not taro taste it's not that, that sweet yam paste taste or it's, it's not azuki red bean <laughs> and I guess it's a, it's a new you know you, you gotta introduce it some way or somehow, 
and the fact that I placed it there, oh, it's a traditional flavor, it's Teochew. So it's already like, okay, you kind of have to pre- get pre- prepared that it's not your red bean azuki Japanese, you know, paste, or not the taro paste from Japan, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's not that. So I think they're, I think the, the amazing thing about Gen Z is that they are very acceptable to all kinds of flavors. Yeah. You see them going out and they are trying more and more food. They're going to eat book and looking at everything. So they're very adventurous. So it's okay. Yeah. I, I think that's what's so unique about your generation is that um, you guys are brought up in, a, in an era where there are so many choices. You know, there's so yeah. many cuisines available to you, everything available at the click of a button. So I think, you know, you guys are very adventurous when it comes to eating compared to other generations before you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, even though you have really traditional things that you don't want to compromise, like the Charlotte oil, there are some really creative and adventurous spins that you have put on your own quiz. Like I saw your mochi that is coated with salty pistachios and I was like thinking to myself that is such a good and genius combination so how do you come up with that okay so in general I'm like a I'm I'm a big foodie I'm very um, inquisitive of all my flavors because I naturally like to R&D a lot of things like when it came to baking I naturally tell people oh I have a friend maybe say I want a birthday cake then I say what do you like and they're like oh I like um, matcha with vanilla then I will make a cake that has a flavor that's matcha and vanilla and both are like complementary to each other and I like to make this kind of like weird flavor combinations or even like yeah it's just interesting and it's fun for me so when it came to the uh, the moati itself I felt that um, the peanut was a, a must have you know everybody is into the peanut but when it came to the black sesame I realized that a lot of the um, you're, you're compromising on the nut flavor also. So I had to add almonds in because I know that um, why people normally choose black sesame is because they're allergic to peanuts. Right? Yep. So if you're allergic to peanut, you're normally not really allergic to almonds. So mm-hmm. I, made, I made that flavor combine up. And actually a lot of people who like toasted almonds, you know, like when you bake like um, dacois cakes and stuff like that, you have like that almond strong flavor. A lot of people who are like bakers, they really, really like the almond flavor actually. Mm. But but those people who don't really have that flavor profile in their brains, they don't really appreciate the black sesame, which I which I understand. I wanted more color because um, no moati is always like oh they always put it as like market as yin yang you know like white and black and that's all yeah you know, there's no other other colors. And I was like um I'm not gonna like buy like dried powder like beetroot powder or anything i'm not gonna do that because that's processed correct and Mm -hmm. that kind of like stands away from what we normally do so i was like okay what's a nut that has color oh pistachios so i was just like oh that's the first thing i thought about i was just like pistachios sounds like a good choice you know and i was like okay i'm gonna try making a flavor but i tried the sweet method it didn't really work out because the sugar overpowered the pistachios so i added salt instead and boom I feel like that is a really good example of respecting tradition while innovating and bringing our local food forward in a way that is fresh and very creative. So I also know that when you make your mochi, you actually pound it by hand. Ah, yes. (laughs) I feel that that is such a huge departure from people's understanding of mochi because a lot of mochi recipes online, right? You just use a microwave, you just chuck it in for like Mm. five minutes and then you have your mochi. So what what do you feel about that? I actually 
mm, I don't see anything wrong with it. I just feel like, okay, because everybody, you know, we are getting busier by the day. You know, traditionally, last time people had a lot of time. Now they don't really have a lot of time. So, you know, shortcuts are made. You know, a, a lot of like things to make it more efficient were made. So the person who made the microwave technique, I, I commend them because that's a genius idea. Mm. Um, but of course, you you by creating this uh, method, you kind of lose out on a lot of like the traditional um, things that come about. Like you know how the the knocked mo- mo- mochi, yeah, like the Japanese mochi tastes a lot more different than the 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 ones that is microwave mochi. You don't have that bite. Don't have that stickiness, that chewiness in it. And also, uh, I only know how to make mochi through a stick. So that's like that's like my only idea. I was just like, wait, how do people do people I, is my stick technique like even interesting? And I searched online on YouTube. I was just like, wait, nobody does that. What kind of stick is it? Like, is it similar to you know hakas when they make later fun, right? They have actually a quite a long stick. Is it similar? I, I um the thing is that I lost the stick that my my grandma I don't know where did my grandma last put her stick, but <laughs> um I just use a thin rock uh, like a, a stick that's thin. I, I know that in Angmokyo there's this like traditional shop and they sell like you know the angkukwe modes and stuff. They have a wooden pedal also, but I I don't know how to work that in. <laughs> in the Mwati, the reason why I use a thin stick because you gotta break up that that. Ex- exterior so you have to break it apart and, and slowly like basically knitting the glutinous rice flour together in a way using that stick yeah mm-hmm. so you said that you used to be a baker right you used to bake a lot of yeah. stuff last time and i read on your website that in your classes you teach your students how to adopt like a more agaga approach to cooking yes. so mm. how is that shift for you like i mean um, from being very precise down to the last gram kind of person to someone who is more free-spirited? I think, um, especially at the start when I tried to learn um, kui making from my grandma, I was really like, oh, how many grams is that? Wait, you just dumped one whole pack of this. How are you? How do you know what's the thing? I, I was just like, wait, what? And I, I even do like to the point where, you know, she just takes that, that bag of glutinous rice flour and dumps it in. And then after she just leaves it there. So I was just like, okay, then I measure how much is that, you know, because I wanted, like, ingredient, ingredient, and, you know, how many grams and stuff. But after she's just, like, she just dumps water, and when she's not, she touch, touch, touch a bit, she's like, huh, and she adds a bit of water, I'm like, wait, <laughs> is that a tablespoon? Wait, is that five grams? Wait, what? And then I just get, like, I give up, you know, my, my piece of paper is always stuck at glutinous rice flour, and everything else doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So, um, I think after a while, I realized that she keeps when when I'm the one who's making and she's the one who's teaching me verbally. I start to realize, okay, this is a texture that you have to achieve. You know, you add water here and then it's a texture. You add hot water to rice flour and therefore you know you gotta grit your hand in. You gotta feel the textural differences. And I think from that, it really makes you appreciate what ingredient does what, how much water affects you know glutinous rice flour to what extent is your buffer period, you know, if you were to boil it, how long do you boil it? Like, there's no actual time. She never ever gave me a time. And she'd be like, oh, just wait. Once it once it boils and then it floats up, then she's like, tang de, tang, tang, tang. She would ask me, wait, wait, wait. Then I'm like, wait, what? Like, it's floating already. She's like, ah, boy, ah, boy. Then I'm like, okay. Then I just wait there. I'm not even timing. I'm just like, huh? Then she would just poke, poke, poke. And then she's like, okay, it's done. Then I'm like, 
<laughs> what? Like, how? And yeah, I think she, she really just like gave me this idea that, okay, food is more than just numbers on a piece of paper. And it made me think a lot more on like how to even like replicate a lot of things that I see online, like intuitively. And I like that I became a better cook after making more of these like kueh because I make everything out of intuition. I R&D by intuition and it really helped a lot. Kueh making is very communal, right? I mean, it used to yes. be that the whole family would come together and make kueh together. Yeah. Um, my, my husband's um, grandmother, she's actually a big kueh maker. Like, I learned how to make peng kueh from her. I learned how to make angku ah. kueh and rempa udang from her as well. And like, when I learned from her, it was so tiring to be honest. I work as a chef and I found that really tiring because it was like three hours of sitting there and doing the same things over and over again, right? <laughs> and I think it is something that younger Singaporeans are not used to. So, I mean, what is your take on that? What advice do you have for someone who may not have the patience to make kueh, for example? I think the entire ideology of kueh is slowing down. Hmm. I think in this entire fast-paced life, we kind of try to do things as fast as possible. We get like kids to make things because we're lazy to chop. You know, we, we buy pre-cut food because we're lazy to chop. We buy pre-made food because we're lazy to cook. So the entire making process, of course, if you do not want to make for an entire kampong, you can always make lesser. Um, and that's why the aga-aga method, right? You don't have, you, the scaling process is very easy. Um, but I think the advice I have is just the fact that Kuei making is a, it's a mindset. Not really, it's just the making, but it's a mindset. Yeah. I love that. I love how you say that it's yeah. like a mindset and a lifestyle, more than just yeah. an I also wanted to know what your thoughts are on the future of Singaporean food. You know, before having met you and before checking out your brand and hearing about the amazing things that you're doing, I think I always felt a bit, um, fearful about the future for Singaporean food mm. because it felt like no one was interested in this kind of food anymore. Everyone is all about instant gratification when it comes to cooking um, and when it comes to eating, not many people appreciate traditional flavors anymore. So what, what do you feel? Do you feel optimistic for the future? I think there are many individuals like me who do feel the need to like do something about it, about um, heritage food. There's a lot of foodies nowadays. There's a lot of like these um, people trying to appreciate local food. And I think that that's already a start. I feel our culture is very, because we are saturated with so many, many different cultures of food. We are a country that goes about uh, eating via a trend, right? Mm. Like bubble tea, it was a trend. Now not everybody's interested in bubble tea. You know, A&W was gone for two, like, few years and then once it's back well everybody's in it again you know and I personally didn't feel like oh Singapore needs to have all the kueh shops to be gone for everything to be back again like you know and I think it's mainly education I, I feel the big part is education because if the family structures have changed if we are going from a three gen family to a two gen family and we're eating different food then it's all about educating that flavors from the get-go. 
And my initial project was targeted mainly at Gen Z's because of this educational factor. And I actually linked up with part of like my school, like um, my secondary school, to actually want I wanted to host the shops workshops in home econ economics. Oh my god, that would be such a great idea. That's fantastic. Because the I remember COVID came. <laughs> I remember how when I was in home econs, like we only learned one local thing, which was onde onde, and then the rest were like oh spaghetti and things like that. Life had onde onde. Mine was just like spaghetti. Really? Oh god. Yeah, it was terrible. It it should be part of our education because I feel that nowadays people know more about um, cultures and cuisines abroad than our own local culture and cuisine. So what is your favorite kue shop in Singapore? I would like to know. <laughs> okay, I own. I would say I only eat savory kues. I only buy savory kues, and thus far, um, my house favorite is Fatsun Kue at Coven. Hmm, I've never heard of it. Um, it's, it's the it's they're, they're more known at Bedok, but it's a uh, it's basically they have that chewy like um sungkwe like the, the the chewy skin, yeah. not the traditional type. So it's a glassy elastic type type of skin, and I think what is a banger compared to all the other shops there is that their broth that they cook it in, is umami max like. Isn't it steamed? Like, uh no so. Um, when I when you make sungkwe, you can you basically char the ingredients, right? You have oh, you're thinking ingredients. about the filling, right? The filling itself, it's you can you can feel you can taste the depth of like the sauce is like absorbed into the mangguang, yeah. And I think that that's like wow, awesome. I need to try, man. Thanks for inspiring me. Really, thank you. <laughs>